0: Thank you for downloading Nine Days, Nine Podcasts, a production of Pardes North America. This special series is a curated collection of premium Tisha B'Av content from the Pardes archives. We hope it brings additional meaning to these solemn days. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Nine Days, Nine Podcasts. The topic of today's conversation that we will have together is trusting our children when they can't be trusted. Now I wouldn't be here teaching this class if I hadn't had many, many experiences uh, of trusting my children so much that I almost lost them and not trusting my children so much that I almost lost them. It's a catch 22. And I think that this topic is a topic that really changed my life in a very major way. Um, I have seven children. Thank God they are almost all grown up already (laughs) by now. Uh, Our youngest is in the army. Uh, That journey isn't over yet. Our other children are either all married or almost all married. So I'm able to live uh, vicariously through through the grandchildren and get to experience what I would have loved to have done when my children were young and get to do it with my grandchildren. Try to correct some of the mistakes I made when I was a parent. Um, Okay. So before I hand out the source sheet, I'd like for us to turn to the person next to us and you feel comfortable and if not you can just think to yourself and think about someone who trusted you share an experience of someone who trusted you when you weren't necessarily up to fully being trusted could have been in a professional capacity in a personal capacity when you were younger could have been this year I want you to just think about And if you feel comfortable, share for 60 seconds with the person next to you. Each person can have 60 seconds to share what happened. What was that experience? What did it bring up for you? And what did it bring out in you? Finish your thought, finish your thought. And I'll be interested to hear in a moment what it brought up for you, what did it bring out in you, and what, it bring, what did it bring up for you to be trusted before you felt you really were ready to be trusted? Anyone want to share what it brought up for you, what it brought out in you? Guilt. Why? How so? Uh-huh. Because you were engaged in a behavior that was betraying someone's trust when they actually trusted you. Right? That's one aspect of that's one of the dangers of trusting someone. One of the dangers of trusting is that we open ourselves up to vulnerability, and people betray our trust sometimes, and that's a very frightening, and dangerous, um, and messy thing. What else did it bring up for you? Someone else? So someone trusting you in a professional capacity before you felt you were fully adequate enabled you to believe in yourself and enabled you to take the kind of risks and create priorities to actually make good choices, even if they weren't perfect. Is that was that an accurate? Uh, okay. Anyone else want to share? I think in in general, these are the two right. These are sort of the two sides of the coin. Either trusting too much sets us up for being vulnerable, even for dangerous risks. And trusting a lot can enable people to really grow into themselves. There have been a lot of studies done on children and teenagers in terms of trusting. Um, What does it do for a child to be trusted? What does it do for a child to be trusted? It's part of a child's developmental need to be trusted when a child is trusted to do something even before they're fully capable of doing it but when they're of course we're talking about age-appropriate activities when a child when, when we trust a child even you know you can walk over to your friend's house by yourself or you can you know go to the movies or you can have money to go you know spend it however you like or whatever all kinds of things we, we trust our children with you can have a cell phone ah that was my scariest moment of like stepping into the abyss is when, <laughs> is when our youngest child said, I want a cell phone. And we said, no, 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 for all, so many years. And then finally, when she came to me with this look of this abysmal this look of, I can't take it anymore because I'm the only person in my seventh grade class who doesn't have a cell phone. I'm like, you don't need a cell phone in seventh grade. She said, I'm the only person in my class who doesn't have a cell phone. And finally, my heart just broke. And I said you know what am i going to do and the trust that we gave our child obviously with boundaries and with rules and with regulations turned into one of the biggest disasters that we could have ever imagined dangerous behavior and activity and however however many rules and regulations we put however many consequences we promised and followed through with, uh, it just became more and more dangerous over time, and the behavior got completely out of control. What I want to say is that, if I didn't say before I have seven children, if I did not, uh, if I had not experienced this and grown from this and made horrific mistakes in areas of trust, I wouldn't be teaching this class today. If I had had all normative, normative children who, had reasonable sense, sensibilities, who I could trust and who returned that trust by being trustworthy, so we wouldn't have to discuss this. I don't know how many people in this room have had similar experiences. You don't have to raise your hands, but I think that the experiences speak for themselves. Um, So I want to talk a little bit today about trusting our children when they can't be trusted. What does that look like? And how is our relationship with our children essentially a reflection of God's relationship with Am Yisrael. So here are your source sheets. Okay, the first source on page 1 is from a Masachat Sanhedrin, from the Talmud, page 104b. This is in a section of the Talmud in Sanhedrin, in a section called Perik Chelek, chapter 11. Perak Chelek is... Um, begins with and is about um, the foundational beliefs that all of Am Yisrael have that enable us to deserve having a life in Olam Abba, Right? It's based on a pasuk Kol Yisrael Yeshlem Chelik LaOlam That's the same pasuk we begin per kevod. Every uh, person in Israel has a portion in the world to come, whatever that means. That's not on your source sheet. I'm just quoting uh, the Pasuk. Um, this section, in Sanhedrin, talks about foundational beliefs and about how everyone, essentially, in Am Yisrael, is deserving of Olam Abba, with very, very few exceptions. And it goes through the very few exceptions, the evil kings in Israel, and a few exceptions of people who are not deserving of Olam Haba. In this section, uh, we have some Midrashim about Echa that are based on Eicha. Okay. Echa was a time of uh, great sadness and great tragedy, as we all know. And let's take a look together. Sanhedrin 104b. This is from Echa chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. She weeps and weeps in the night. Echa. Why the stubble weeping? Rava said in Rav Yochanan's name once for the first temple and once for the second okay in the night why in the night? on account of what happened at night for it is written all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried and the people wept that night what night was that? Of the Meraglim, right? The Chet Meraglim, right? the, The time of the spies when they came back. What did they do? What caused the people to weep? All the people to weep, not just some of the people. Everybody wept. What did they do that caused that? They basically pulled the rug out from under people's basic emunah that God would follow through with God's promises to take them into the land of Israel. And that even though there were anakim, there were giants, and there were fortressed city, cities, etc., that God was stronger than those giants. That God was going to fulfill God's promise, and basically the meraglim, the spies, pulled out the rug under that emunah, and the people, not just a few, but all the people, wept all night. Okay? Continue. We're going to pick up now on the image of night. Rabbi observed in Rabbi Yochanan's name, it was the night of the ninth of Av, and the Almighty said to Israel, You have all wept without cause. Therefore, will I appoint a day of weeping to you for your future generations. If we're going to be really, really, really honest, has anyone yet cried this Tisha B'Av? I haven't. And I want to think about that. Because what does it mean to cry on Tisha B'Av? In fact, I haven't even been choked up this Tisha B'Av. Okay, you might say, well, because it isn't really Tisha B'Av, Tisha B'Av is on Shabbat, and so maybe there, but I think that there's a way more to it than that. Um, we don't really cry over Yerushalayim, but I have shed so many tears over my own children, my own family crisis, crises. I have shed so many tears, I've fallen asleep crying so many nights in crisis over various, family matters that almost, that, that made it feel like our entire house was just crumbling in shambles. Chazal say, Adam um, karov etzel It's not on your sheet. Adam karov etzel We're close to ourselves. We feel what we feel because it's ours. Because those emotions are things that really move us and really touch us. And I want to take a look at the next uh, section of this uh, pieces of Agarata uh, and share with you something really fascinating that I read from Rabbanit Yamima Mizrahi. She has this beautiful, exquisite, deep book called Kamayim Libech, um, which is about, it's a Masab bin ha-mitzarim. it's a journey through the three weeks, and, and she speaks about basically how we relate, how we can relate from our own personal sufferings, how can we begin to relate to Yul And I think that the Agarita suggests this without saying it, and I am taking from Yimim al to explain it. On your sheet, third paragraph. Another meaning, in the night, whoever weeps at night, his or her voice is heard. So what does that mean? Night is a time of quiet. Night is a time of anxiety. And when a person weeps at night, it's more likely that people around us will hear. We hear sometimes babies crying at night or children crying at night when they don't want to go to sleep right? Our na- in our neighbors' homes. People, when they cry at night, it can be heard outside. Kalva homer when people didn't have air conditioners way back when and, right, and the windows weren't all closed, eh, people hear each other at night. That's obvious. But why did the Agarita now take a turn from weeping over Yerushalayim to a person crying in their bed at night, exactly for this reason, because Adam Karov because we feel what we feel about our own losses, our own tragedies, our own crises, our own struggles, and that's what we cry about. Let's take a look at the next section, paragraph three. Another meaning: Whoever weeps in the night, the stars and constellations weep with him or her. So, what does that mean? Whoever weeps in the night, the stars and constellations become our heruta in weeping. They echo our weeping. What does that mean? Any thoughts? I want to suggest to Pas Shelley. So constellations could be like the mazalot, which is what it says in Hebrew, or it could be the you know, the galaxies talking about, the, you know, outer space. We're talking about something in outer space or something which is amorphous that we cannot uh, either see or that doesn't, you know, have a mamashu tangibility. Right? right, Iska? So in the act of weeping, something in the cosmos shifts. That's what you're saying. In a sense, what, what, what this might be suggesting could be suggesting one of two things. could be suggesting lots of things, but it could be suggesting that the cosmos weeps together with us because in a sense, what you're saying that God is enabling the cosmos to sort of echo our own weeping in a way of saying that we're not alone, that when we do weep and we are true to ourselves, that in a sense, we, we make the greatest connection to the cosmos, which if we look out into space is very empty or from our perspective. Of course, it's not empty, but it looks very vast. It's like a home and a this, something that feels empty. And when we feel emptiness and we look out at the cosmos, the cosmos in a sense reflects that emptiness, which is very real and very true and very authentic to us. That's a one possibility. It could be that um, that the cosmos weeps with us because just like the cosmos can't change that when we weep and we are in crisis and we, can, we feel like nothing's gonna change. That's why we cry. We cry because we feel like there's no hope for change. And if anything is constant in the world, even though I know in terms of astrophysics, like things are crashing into each other all the time, but I'm thinking in, you know, like, oh, like in larger terms, really the cosmos is not, it doesn't change. It moves, it, right, and you might correct me, but it, from our perspective, it doesn't change. From our perspective, it's constant. Right. Uh, we know that we can more or less count on the sun to do what it's supposed to do and on the earth to do what it's supposed to do and the other constellations as well um, and the stars twinkle at night and whatever happens, right, from our perspective it's constant so it could be either from a place of of despair that it says that it just echoes back, our mirrors our despair or it could be because of that tremendous empathy let's take the, ne- the next sentence another meaning all right, Lila. They're stuck on this word Laila. Lila, what does it mean, Lila? We know Lila is a time of, of, of darkness, of uncertainty, and that's when we weep and we don't know, when we can't imagine, when we can't envision. This past Shabbat was called Shabbat Chazon, right? The Shabbat of vision, of imagining, like being able to imagine something better. But when we're stuck in our, right, we, we can't always imagine something any better, and that's why we weep. I'm in the last line of um, paragraph three. Another meaning whoever weeps in the night, he who hears him weeps. Not only do we, right, do people hear us, but it, but it's contagious, right? People weep with us, people are sensitive. Why? Because weeping is a very, crying is a very, very painful sound. There were women who were professional mekonenot, professional criers. Who at funerals were invited sometimes to funerals to cry, to get people to cry. Um, Next paragraph. It happened that the child of a neighbor, so here's just emphasizing, just a story emphasizing what they just said that whoever weeps in the night, the person who hears him also weeps. It happened that the child of a neighbor of Rabban Gamliel died, and she was weeping for him at night. Tragic, horrific da Afpam they say that a, that a child losing a child is the worst loss that a parent can ever experience. Rabban her hearing her wept in sympathy with her until his eyelashes fell out. Ma what does it mean that his eyelashes fell out? They washed they I can only imagine that like crying and like we, you know, we rub our eyes, rub our eyes, rub our eyes. And so not, obviously not literally, but uh, they're using this image of his eyelashes fell out. And on the morrow, his disciples discerned this and removed her from his neighborhood. What was he crying about? He was crying so much that his eyelashes fell. What was he crying about? Whoever knows what period of time he lived in during the time when the Romans, it was the saddest period of history, when the Romans, before the destruction of the Second Temple, when the Romans were um, making the life of Amislel miserable and it was so clear that the, that there was no way that the Jews were going to survive the Roman persecution. Either they were going to have to fight or they were going to have to succumb and they didn't know what to do. Rabban Gamliel was in favor of fighting, right? He was in favor of fighting and I think that the 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 amount of anxiety and panic that no matter what you believed in at that time, I think people felt a sense of panic and tragedy that they didn't know what was going to happen. And I'm sure that Ravan Gamliel's crying was not because, not only because of the woman losing her child. He was crying for himself. He was crying for his people. He was a leader of the people. And there's no question that the reason that as Talmudim removed her from his neighborhood, I hope they did that sensitively, there is no question that they did that because they needed him to be their leader because this was such a tragic and painful time for the Jewish people and they had to, they, they had to make sure that he would be able to sleep at night, that he would be able to guide them, that he would be able to function for them. Okay? So he's crying, all this is coming to say that we cry over the things that are real to us. That's all we can really cry for. We can cry in sympathy for someone else but really weeping happens only when it's, right, when it comes from the gut, okay? Um, Let see. turn the page. Okay, so before we talk about trusting and move away from weeping, I want to say a few more words about weeping that I learned from Yemima Mizrahi that really brought this piece of Agarita to life for me. Yemima Mizrahi writes, we read in Megillat Esther about crying, about tears. That's the first line of Megillat Esther. Why is the Megillah filled with feminine imagery? B'chotiv ke'balayla. That Yerushalayim is depicted as a woman who's been defiled. Right? Why? Is it just because? In Hebrew, all cities are feminine, and therefore, I mean, is, that, is it really just a technicality? Because the Torah could have chosen, Miao could have chosen to write Echa in the language, in the masculine language, and write about Amisael, and write about it in the masculine. So, why was it written about in the feminine? Yes. That's right. Exactly. in the Beit HaMikdash, was our home. And in the home, there was a table with food, and there was a menorah, lights, that provided light and spiritual light. There was a bedroom, as it were. There was a place of intimacy. There was Kodesh Kodashim that no one was allowed to be in except very, very special times and very special, except the Kohen Gadol, on behalf of Am Yisrael, and very, very special times and special moments. No one else could see that place. No one else could enter that place. There was also a big chatzor, like the salon or that backyard or the front yard or the courtyard, where everyone was allowed to be. It was really like a home. And so, yes, we have, that, we have that imagery of Hashem and Am Yisrael being married to each other, being husband and wife. Many images of that. I think there's another reason as well, um, is that, the emotional aspect of human beings is usually thought of as a feminine quality, right? When men cry, a lot of times men don't like to cry, or it's harder for them to cry, or they don't want to show that they're crying. I've only seen my husband cry once out of sadness. I've cried a thousand times. I think that. I think that the the quality, doesn't mean that men don't have that quality, they for sure have that quality, but it's seen as a more feminine quality, the quality of vulnerability, the quality of of being able and willing to just let it out, to just really let those emotions just, you know, scream to the heavens. I think that that's a very feminine quality. Um, Our tradition emphasizes the descriptions of suffering using feminine images to touch on the deeply, deeply emotional place in our hearts, in our human hearts of men and women, where our own home is faltering, where our own home is crumbling. When one of our children was suffering, my entire home felt like it was in flames. My heart was in flames child suffers, a parent's heart is just burns, burns with burns with agony. It's a very, very painful thing. Erica Brown, in her beautiful, exquisite book, she's so articulate. If you have not read this, I highly recommend it for next, for any time of any time of the year, and especially during the three weeks. She has this book called In the Narrow Places. And she says it's not for no reason that Beit HaMikdash is called a Beit. Again, it's the only thing we can relate to. We can't really relate to Beit HaMikdash as a, an institution. We can't cry for an institution. I mean, we can think about it, and we can... We can we, intellectually, we can, but emotionally, most people do not have the capacity and the ability to cry over Beit HaMikdash b'emet. Um... So our homes are, are, I'm just going to finish with one uh, thought of hers and then we'll talk about trust. Our homes are, she says, the only way we can truly experience the loss of the bite that Am Yisrael once shared with each other and with God. This is not on your sheet, I'm just. Uh, this is a free translation from her Hebrew. She says the limitations during the three weeks and the nine days could have been much worse. You think they were bad? They could have been much worse. We could have been limited to eating even less or drinking less, or you know, a person who's really in mourning doesn't leave their house. We could have been limited in that way, could be limited in all kinds of ways. But because we desire, as human beings, we have this desire to eat, to keep our homes clean, to paint, to plant, our own lives take precedence in a very, very naturally natural way. So how do we make that connection to, to, to Yerushalayim? How do we make the connection to Beit HaMikdash? And she suggests something very beautiful that comes from this image of crying. She says, we will remain numb, unmoved, and apathetic to God's plight, to the plight of the Shekhinah, to the distance, to the emptiness, to the loss of Yerushalayim, what could be in that relationship. We will remain numb to that unless we can connect our own struggles, our own personal, our own private struggles with those of the, of, uh, those of the temple. Then we might, I'm sorry, with those of, a, of God. With those of God. We might understand intellectually what happened to our nation and what we're missing, but we won't feel. We will never feel it. So she gives a suggestion. If or when we ever feel estrangement or distance in our Zugiut, in our relationships with our partners or with our closest friends, We can imagine the same kind of brokenness, distance, estrangement between God and the Jewish people. We can use those feelings to try to imagine, just to try to imagine what it might be like for God. What it might be like for God to have lost the Beit HaMikdash. When one of our own children was uh, very, very angry at us, ran away from home, did not want to have contact with us, I said, oh... Now I feel, now I feel what God feels toward God's children. Because God's children often run away from home. God's children often turn off their cell phones and don't allow God to communicate with them. Am Yisrael is very, very human and very in need of our independence and very resistant to being told what to do amishrael for the most part hated the prophets hated the prophets the prophets were only here to try to help us but amishrael did not we were we weren't able to just like children if even though we as parents come to help our children we say we really only have your best interest in mind and that's why we're Taking away the car keys, and that's why you have to be home at right, one o'clock in the morning and not later. I thought was an exaggeration, midnight. Um, probably, only when that didn't work, it became one o'clock. And then right, when we tell our kids that we really, we have their best interests in mind, do they believe us? They think we're trying to limit them. They think we're trying to just uh, destroy their independence. They think, right, I'm not saying they all children. Now I'm talking about the more defiant ones, okay? Because the children who are not defined, the children who have sort of normative relational values, they, like, we have that trust in a very natural way. It's not necessarily a very big challenge. So the kid doesn't do their homework, so they get the consequences from the teacher, and then they, like, straighten up, and, you know, they and they do it next time. In other words, it's not, it's not an issue. But I'm talking about the children who are oppositional, the children who are ADD or ADHD or super creative and talented and just, like, don't have patience for school and rules and boxes, and, like, don't put me in a box, right? My most brilliant and talented children are the ones who who are the most oppositional. They are the most phenomenal children. What I learned a little bit late in the game, but thank God I learned it, was that teenagers are so much fun, I couldn't stand my teenagers when we started out on the journey. My first teenager was like, "Oh my god, what is going on in my household?" I felt it was going to just be like a game of dominoes where he was going to knock down all the other kids and I, you know, I said like, "Okay, you can bring in you know, I think it was Ayal Golan, like I said, you can bring in music, but you can only, that music, that music, but you can only play it in your room, right? Now, like our youngest daughter, it's fun. nice to have a lot of long, wide range of children because <laughs> the mistakes we made when our son was older, because kids are fun. My youngest daughter listens to crazy music, but sometimes we dance around in the kitchen together, and just like I get crazy with her, and it sort of brings me back to a time that I myself was a teenager, and like, it's really fun, Teenagers are a lot of fun. Yes, they're a big heartache a lot of times. My teenager was a teen, some of my teenagers were tremendous, gave me tremendous heartache, but I think partially because I didn't know how to have fun with them. also, I didn't, wasn't able to appreciate all the wonderful things about them. I was so nervous about them rejecting the values, the good values that we gave them, and they rejected, they turned their back on our values. and how dare they? not just for me but for them didn't they realize they were going to get themselves into the horrible situations which they did didn't they realize that didn't they know that we were just passing down our values to like to protect them to give them a good ch- to a good life ultimately and i was so wrapped up in not trusting them and not even being able to love them fully because i was so distraught that they just it felt like just were spitting in our face that all the values and the few rules we didn't have so many rules, but the few rules we did have that they just broke them without right in chutzpah, totalit just with total chutzpah. So it encourages me that in uh, Masachet Sanhedrin, in that same Masachet Sanhedrin, it's not on your sheet. I'm just gonna read it to you. Sanhedrin. Uh, 97. It's Zain, design. Yeah, it's Zain. Um, he says, the generation of the Geula, in the generation of the Giula youth will embarrass their elders. Elders will stand before the youth and not the other way around. Daughters will rebel against their mothers. Oi. Mm-hmm. Sons will not be embarrassed to do all kinds of horrible things in front of their fathers. Okay. I don't know how to translate that. Can you help me with that, Iska? I right. the the face of the generation is like the face of a dog. There's no shame. There's no... Is that good news or bad news? It sounds awful. But maybe there's some good news in that. If anyone was with me last year when I taught on Tisha B'Av... I brought the verse from Mikha. I sorry, from uh, Malachi chapter 3 that says if Elijah is coming to announce the Geulah, when Elijah is coming to announce the Geula, right? it says that he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and turn the hearts of the children to their parents meaning where does it begin? where does the trust begin? where does the love begin? It begins with us. And all of those challenges, something else that really gave me a lot of uh, quach is that those challenges that our children present to us, Rav Cook writes, in I don't remember the, uh, where it is exactly, but I, uh, Rav Cook writes that the challenges that our children present to us, and he says the challenges in general that, a, that the sort of I don't know what he calls it. Like uh, he calls about chiloniyut, like that the secular society presents to the religious society are like the wrestling of two wrestlers that are kicking up dust with each other, and he says that the very dust of their wrestling rises up to Kisea kovod, and that the wrestling, that wrestling of our children with us, and the people of chutzpah who are. Right, defiantly speaking out against all kinds of religiosity said it's just there to help us to help us it's there to help us to, to, to make changes to, to, to make shifts to become gentler people to become more loving to become more embracing so let's talk about trust <clears throat> another 12 minutes At the bottom of page one, there's a line that should have been at the top of page two. It says, the problem with trusting. So we talked about the problem with trusting. The problem is that when we trust too much, sometimes our kids get into lots of trouble. And the need for trust. Why is there such a huge need for us to trust our children? That's exactly right. Because we... Beautiful. Shelly, you just said a few th- things. I'm going to try to repeat and see if, you, if I miss anything. Tell me. Said so cannot, We cannot become ourselves if we're not trusted. We only learn from our own mistakes. That's all we learn from. We cannot learn from, and we can learn some from books and from advice other people give us, but really a person who has, i say that only a person only learns, I forget exactly the language, but really it's only a person who is like, only a person who falls, who fails, who falters, and then gets up, that, that person learns the lesson. Yes. Absolutely. By not trusting our children, not only were we showing them disrespect and that they they can't even respect themselves, I'm showing that they can't be trusted. And therefore, one of our uh, dear therapists who got us through some horrible years of crisis with one of our children and within our entire family when the crisis spilled over into our whole family, (coughs) told us how important it is to tell our child who we did not trust that we trust her. I trust you to make good decisions. I didn't trust her, a bit, but I had to. I had to uh, learn how to say it enough times until I started to believe it. Until she started to take our trust and show us that she actually could be trusted in very, very small ways. a Very long journey. Um, what I trusted her to do in a particular thing, I really wanted her to change some of her friends, because friend, friends at teenage years are critically important for a person's values and their ability to, right, to walk, a, walk a straight path in life, to have integrity. And it took her a good few years, like four, to change some of those friends that I was really worried about. But I, I, I couldn't do it for her. She had to learn for herself. And I just had to keep saying, I trust you. I know you're going to, I know you're going to, you know. She has new friends now. She went to the army. She has new friends. And I said, you know, I'm sure you have really good friends because you have such good taste in friends. Did I mean that? Not totally, but I need to mean that. Meaning, I mean, I have to say it enough times until I really can mean it. And because I've been able to, open up and become more trusting. I've been able to have better communication with her. We have a better relationship. Our relationship has completely changed from the days of I don't want to talk to and running away from home to, you know, hugs and kisses. And she calls me from the army. I want, you know, I want to talk to you. I want to, you know, whatever. And sometimes her friends from the army get on the phone and they say, oh, I want to talk to your ima too. She's really cool, you know. So... <laughs> Okay, maybe I did something right. Um, yes. Exactly where I want to go with this. Thank you, Roni. That in the time of the geula, the geula is not a moment. It's not the end of the movie where the credits start rolling down. It's not. It's a process. And what we can trust in our children, this is really the most, um, one of the most important points that I, that I want to make, is that... Trusting our children is trusting in the process. Trusting in the ability to say that what they are at 14, 16, 18, 20, whatever it is, like they aren't going to be right. If you, when I think about myself, that was the best, that was like the best thing I was finally willing to do one day is to say, like, I was a really bad kid. (laughs) My parents trusted me a lot. No, I was a really good kid. I was a really good kid and I did a lot of really bad things. And I did, and my parents gave me trust and I totally, like you said, you know, betrayed their trust in lots and lots of ways and hid things from them and lied to them and, then, and then I did a lot of things that I am not proud of and that I wouldn't stand up here and tell you about, right? When I was a kid. And trusting is about trusting in the process. We all live in process. We all live in process. And that's part of what I think I want to end with ultimately is that God does God trust God's children? In the middle of page two. Does God trust God's children? He's just saying yes. So we say Rabbah Monetecha, we say it, but where do we see that God trusts God's children? Does God micromanage us? Does God have like surveillance? You know, people, one of my friends just said, oh, I'm so glad I just put this chip in my kid's iPhones so at least I know where she is because when she's out you know here or there she's whatever I know that like she hasn't come home at least I know she's in the shook at least I know she's you know whatever at least I know she's not in some forest whatever like at least I, I, I know where she is right so there's interesting articles about surveillings and children and what it, what it does to children um, in terms of their trust of us if they know if they know that we're using surveillance is that helpful or is it not helpful? There's much more to talk about. I want to talk about that in, in, uh, at the moment just because we don't have any time left. But I want to say that that's really about micromanaging. And the question is, does God micromanage us? So if God has surveillance tactics, which maybe God does, he's like, oh, yeah, of course. Right? God, doesn't, God doesn't show us that every minute of the day. In other words, we don't have, I don't have a, like a movie screen in front of my eye which is showing me that God sees everything that I do. I can actually pretend that I can get away with things and God lets me do that. And there's something about, and I don't have to do everything that God tells me to do. And I think that there's something in, the really, God gave us the rules. When things get really bad, when things got really bad, God gave us consequences. I'll come to you in a second. And what I want to think about is about the destruction of the temple. When there's different, I think there's different ways. There's a theory. I think it's blue. I think it's, it's Greenberg's theory, but I only never read. it, I only heard about it. That Hashem doesn't. That Hashem is, treats us in ways in the ways that we develop developmentally. That Hashem has treated us in different ways along time. So when we were in the desert, Hashem treated us like children. We got manna. And we had protection. Al mudesh, we had protection. And we also got punished. Boom. Right? Did something wrong, got punished. Magifah. Right? There was a plague and lots of people died. And all those scary scenes in the Torah that I wouldn't want to see in a movie. I hope nobody ever makes a movie out of them because I wouldn't want to see them. I would have to watch them. In the desert, there were immediate responses and immediate consequences. That's what we do for our children when they're very, very young. But for teens, when Amislah became a teenager, so Hashem set up prophets So there was Moshe Rabbeinu who was already a prophet, but the prophets who really warned about um, pending destruction. And that didn't really help us, did it? It didn't get us out of any trouble. We just knew in advance, basically, there was fair warning for the consequences. We knew that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. So once Jerusalem was destroyed, we actually realized that, oh yeah, that's what they were talking about. For young adults, which is maybe what we are, adults, young adults, old adults, whatever, we're adults, that after the temple was destroyed, after the second temple was destroyed, and after the end of prophecy between the first and second temple areas, but for sure after the second temple was destroyed, there are no more prophets. And God does not micromanage us anymore. God does not send us prophets. And essentially, God creates distance. Now, is distance a good thing or a bad thing? It's both, in what way is distance a good thing it enables us to yearn when god is distant that's when people are like or become seekers because god is distant so as a parent when i take a few steps back right and i'm not like on my kid every day you know all the time talking asking them what are they doing what are they doing what are they doing so that distance sometimes creates a certain sense of yearning like i'm getting uh, the. Fruits of you know the dividends of that investment. When my kid calls, when my daughter calls, her thing up from the army and says, you know, I miss you. So that distance actually can be very helpful. But distance can also be very dangerous because when God is distant from God's children, so a lot of times children just check out. Okay. Yes, out of sight, out of mind, and absence makes the heart grow fonder. It works both ways. So God creates distance. Without distance, we would not seek, we would not yearn. With too much distance, like I say to my kids, I'm trying to just give you space and independence, right? That same daughter came to me recently and said, you know, how come you don't care about what I'm doing? I'm like, I do care about you. Well, you, you, don't, care about, you don't care about me at all because, you, you, like, you haven't asked me, you don't ask me, like, who, you know, what I'm doing, what's going on with me, like, what... Like, I really was just trying to give you some space. Of course you know I love you and I care about you, right? So, like, you can't, you can't win, so just we should know that as parents. Like, there's no, and God can't win, and God knows that. We can't win, right? But uh, trusting, trusting us happens when our children know that we love them unconditionally. We want the best for them. And when I was able to finally realize I needed to say to my child, tell me what you need. I love you. I want to be with you. I don't want to smother you. I want you to tell me when you need me. If I'm not there for you, I want you to tell me that you need me. My older children, my 30-year-old children, one of my 30-year-old children um, said to me recently, Ima, you're not there for me. This kid's married and has children. I'm like, what do you mean I'm not there for you? He said, you're not there for me. You don't ask. Like, you haven't asked us like, you know, how we're doing financially. Like, We need help. I'm like, okay, so tell me. I didn't know, right? Um, I think Hashem also says to us, talk to me. Hashem saying to us, Talk to me. It's hard for us to ask Hashem all the time for the same thing if we don't get it. Either because I assume that God already knows what I need, or I asked for it yesterday, or this morning, and so I have to ask for it again in mincha, meaning, what's the deal here? God doesn't already know what it is that I need? Why do I need to repeat my prayers over and over and over again? Why does God create that distance? and how much distance is good, and how much is actually God not distant in our lives. Think about all the things that God does give us. So with the distance that we can't exactly find God, but we see the fingerprints and the footprints of God in every moment of our lives, if we choose to. If we choose to. I'll finish... On page two, on page, I don't know what page we're on, two. The study in Lamentations is not a study I intended to do together with you, but just to show you that if Yul is the wife and Yul is the emotional child, that that Shalayim goes through in the book of Eicha, you can look for yourself if you're interested in learning today, a whole range of emotions, grief and anger, despair, a little bit of acceptance, not very much, a little bit of acceptance um, and hope. I'm not sure I should even really say that in the end that Yerushalayim has hope in the book of Echa. But Echa, when we finished reading Echa last night, this morning, we say, We're asking Hashem, bring us back to you and we will do tshuva. What do you mean bring us back to you? Hashem can't make me do tshuva. So what does that mean? What am I asking God to do, really? I think what I'm asking God to do is what I need to do as a parent, is just to shine my face, just to shine my face, to show my love, and hopefully I will be able to, it, it's, my, it's my choice, it's our choice as God's children, it's our children's choice if they can really see our love, if they can feel our love. They have to go through their own journey, just like Amisla has to go through its own journey. And when we think about, not just last thing, that our children, I didn't finish my thought on Yemima Misrahi which is so beautiful. She says, oh yeah, I did finish that thought. That, uh, that when we're experiencing our personal suffering, that it makes us more empathetic of other people, for sure, when we have our experienced suffering. And it can even make us more empathetic toward God. So when we think about crying for Yerushalayim, it's okay to cry for the things that, we really, that really hurt us, that are really challenging and painful for our own losses. And maybe that's the only way to really connect to Yerushalayim. I leave you with questions for thought, which we won't do right now, but now we have a break. And so if you would like to think about them either with the person next to you or in writing, closing reflections on page four, who would you like to be able to trust more? I'm getting a sign that I have 10 more minutes. Oh, good, so let's do this. Okay. I'll take your questions or thoughts. I'm just going to introduce this, and then I'll take some of you who wanted to say something. Who would you like to be able to trust more? Because if we can not just sit here and nod at what feels true to us, but really take a step this day on Tisha B'Av toward building our own bite, toward engaging in the process of trusting in the journey in our own homes. Geula really begins at home. Imagine if every person took one step, one trust-building step today, it would mean a lot of stones in the Beit HaMikdash, right, toward building the bite. So who would you like to be able to trust more? This is for you to think about with the person next to you. And I'll take your questions. I'm just going to introduce this. How would it feel to be able to trust them? How does trusting feel? It feels a lot better than not trusting, a lot better. What would your trust enable them to do? And which trust building step are you ready to take? So I'm gonna suggest that you take the next five, 10 minutes either to talk about that with the person next to you or to meditate on it yourself. Anyone has questions or thoughts, comments you'd like to raise, please do. Iska. Not the To shine God's face, just to show the love, right? right? The experience of closeness is your choice. And I think that God gives ample and infinite opportunities to feel closeness. Anyone who f- has ever felt that closeness to another person, to a child, to a partner, to a friend, to God, we know that that's our choice. It's totally our choice. God gives us those, opp- those opportunities are all, all over the place. Beautiful, thank you. Yes? You mentioned before, least... I think every situation is, called every situation is very, very individual. What I learned from the mistakes that I made was that way more communication with my child about what do you think about this? What do you want to happen? What do you think is going to happen when you go to X, Y, or Z? What would you like to happen? And when I tried to have that conversation, and my child once said, You know, Loch Patli. Loyan Like I, I, I did, you know, in other words, we can do everything we can to communicate to the child and all we can do is say, you know, I trust you're going to make good decisions and that you're going to protect yourself and know that I love you very much, you know. I'm not saying that there's no place for consequences in life. I think there is a place for consequences. It depends very much on the child. Some children are responsive to consequences and for some children consequences does nothing. Very individual, thank you. Other questions? Comments. If I'm going to invite us to just take the next five minutes and to turn to the person next to us or turn inward to ourselves and ask ourselves these questions in our closing reflections. You have a very meaningful Tisha Ba. Thank you again for listening to Nine Days, Nine Podcasts, a production of Perdase North America. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five star review wherever you download your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode.